Today, uh, we're going to dive in, and it is not easy today, and so if you've got an outline, you're going to want to go ahead and grab that. Uh, we're going to dig out all of Friday and what it looked like on this Good Friday that we uh, are, are going to talk about today as we kind of begin to move toward this closing of this series called 168, and uh, I want to start out by talking about the word finish, okay? How many of you ever run a marathon? Okay, or, or, okay, how many of you have ever run a race? All right, let me do that. Okay, good. All right, yeah, okay, I've done that. To the fridge, yes, and I'm always, always win. But the, the idea of finishing is, is really, really important. And, and some of you have had projects that you've been working on, some, some of these to-do lists that have been really, really big, and, or, or maybe home projects, and you've been wrapping up some stuff, and they've been kind of hanging over your head, and at some point you're like, can we just get to the finish line? I mean, this is exhausting. And depending on your, the margin in your world, the, the business of life, or even your energy level as to whether or not you can actually get to some of those things or would like to get to some of those things. And some of you, you've been trying to get out of debt, and you've been working hard with this. God's convicted you of it. You've been really spending time to, to try to, 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 to spend less than what you make to begin to save and to, to begin to, to, to crush all these debts one at a time. And, and, you know, you've had some great success, and then there's been moments along the way where there's been frustrations or emergency things that happen. Happen, things that have been setbacks, and so now it's like, okay, I got to refocus and go after this because I want to finish this idea so that I can move toward a place of being financially free. And maybe you have been transitioning roles at your work. Maybe you got a promotion and you're kind of finishing up this part to go after this part, or maybe you're you're going to actually change jobs and so you're going from this to that, or maybe you're even retiring. And the reality is, is, is that you know this. You need to finish well. You need to prepare the next person. You need to prepare yourself for what is uh, is around the corner for you. And maybe you're a student, and, and you know what? This school year has drug on like crazy, especially seniors. You've had senioritis, and you're like, I just want it to be done. I'm so tired of getting up early and doing this. And the reality is you're going to blink, and you're going to get up and do it again for four more, at least four more years. But the reality, if, you have a, if you're a senior with senioritis, that's one thing. If you're an eighth grader or a freshman or a sophomore with senioritis, that's a whole other thing, right? You're going to have to dig deep. You're going to have to, to, to pull up your bootstraps and work hard because you've got a long way. And even teachers and principals and administration, I know some of you have talked with some of you, the idea for you is that you have senioritis, but yet you work there. And so it's about finishing well where you are. That's, that's crucial and important. And maybe for you, you're finishing college. And you, you've, you've t- it's taken a long time, and you've had to make sacrifices, and you've had to do this, and you've had to work, and so it's like, I'm just trying to finish well. Or maybe you've been in a toxic relationship with somebody, and you're trying to finish this out and move forward and let go of these things to pursue healthier things. Maybe for you, you've had an old car in your garage that you've looked at forever and you've wanted to refinish it or, or fix it up or, and give it away or use it or, or drive it. Maybe for you... You've had an old piece of furniture that you've wanted to refinish, and it just sits there, and it just hangs over your head. And this is not in your notes, but here's the reality. This statement is so true. It's really difficult to finish well. It is. And it doesn't matter if it's a race or if it's a relationship or if it's a job or if it's school. It's hard to finish well because you're just, you, it, it's so easy to, to lose motivation. Life gets busy. It gets crazy. Things get cluttered and it's difficult to, to keep your eye on the finish line. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna begin to look at this idea of what Jesus did to finish well. His eye was on the finish line and it was not an easy race. But he pushed forward. He finished well. And that's what we're going to talk about today. These texts that we're going to talk about, and I'm going to jump off. All around these four passages are these, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. We're going we're gonna to be all over the places. We kind of look at this big piece on this idea that we talk about that's actually on our calendar called Good Friday. That's where we're going to go today. And so it's Friday morning. 
Okay, if you've missed all of this, we've been kind of walking up to this. It's Friday morning, early in the morning. Jesus has been up all night. All right, he goes through the mockery of six different trials. He's sent different places. He's mocked. He's made fun of. He's, con- he's now condemned by Pilate without a clear charge. And the momentum has shifted from actually this day on our calendar, which is, uh, which is the triumphal entry, where everybody is shouting, waving palm branches, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, 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 to now chants that are very different. We want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. What, do you, what should we do with Jesus? And the crowds begin to say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, in all one voice. And then from there, Pilate gives the orders that he's to be crucified. And then he's taken to this thing called the Praetorium where he's taken there to be beaten and flogged. And, and this is what Roman law calls an, epity, an, an appeal to the pity, which simply means we're going to go beat this man up really, really badly with the hope that you will come back to us and say, hey, don't crucify him. Because, again, Pilate didn't want this on his hands. And so they take him to this, this place called the Praetorium, and they begin to beat him. And in your notes, we're just going to walk through some of this, and I'm just going to tell you, okay? I'm not going to live here for, for, for very long, but this stuff is hard to stomach, so get ready, okay? This first part that he encounters is a cat of nine tails, okay? Jesus would be stripped naked, a very humiliating action for any person, especially a modest Jew in that day. He was then tied to a pole, standing up or bent over, leaving his back, Okay, his legs, his butt exposed. He would be shackled by the hands above his head, stretched out with his back just so that way the skin is as tight as possible because as they begin to whip him, they want to tear the flesh as easily as possible. Roman executioners would stand on either side of Jesus with this thing called a flagellum, which is a cat of nine tails. Never heard of it? Here's what it is. It's basically this. It's like a whip. And it has nine leather straps on it with hooks on each of those. And on those hooks are metal our, our bone, our glass, our stone, our sharp objects used to tear the body apart. Criminal was not to receive more than 39 lashes. 40 was known to kill a person. Okay? A soldier would stand on either side and they would rotate back and forth, going from the top to the bottom, whipping the fire out of a person. Stories are gruesome. Eyes being gouged from, from a man's face, ears being ripped from their, from their heads, ribs being pulled from from their bodies, even the spinal column being moved out of place. Jesus is being scourged and his flesh would be ripped from his body. Six out of ten men that went through this didn't even make it. They died. At this point, Jesus is, is, is beaten so bloody, so badly that he is unrecognizable. Isaiah 53, 52 talks about this, and I used this last week and I'm going to use it again. Just as there were many who were appalled at, it, at him, his appearance was so disfigured, figured, beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Prophecy fulfilled 700 years later. You can't even tell that that's Jesus. In your notes, there are more mockings and beatings that will come toward Jesus in the minutes to come. The fact that Jesus survived these floggings would have, would, would have was spoken to his strength and his stamina in the midst of all of this. Jesus is untied. They put his clothes back on him. He's led into a private quarters of Pilate with our 600 other uh, soldiers of his who begin to continue the humiliation. One of them removes his cape and puts it on Jesus. And they, they hand him a, a scepter, a rod, as if he's a king. And they put him in the place and they begin to pretend to worship him. 
This is the second time. If you remember last week, Herod has already done that. They are now doing this again, and they put this, this crown of thorns. They assemble these, these thorns from this thorn bush, and they begin to not put it on Jesus' head. They beat it into his scalp until you can't see Jesus' face. His face is crimson red. And they yell out these things in Mark 15, 8. Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. You king? You don't look anything like a king. They just continue to, the onslaught of, of mocking. In your, in your notes, there's preparation for the crucifixion. This gets difficult. In the crucifixion, preparation for it, Jesus is then stripped again. Most believe that the fibers of his clothing had dried to his body because of the heat of that day. And so can you imagine how painful it would be for them to rip his clothes from his body, ripping the skin, the pain. The soldiers then take a rough piece of timber called a patabolum, and they begin to tie it to Jesus' shoulders and his back and his arms. This crossbeam would have weighed anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. This is a rough piece of recycled timber, which means it's been used for crucifixion before, maybe hundreds of times. And on this crossbeam, this horizontal crossbeam, is tears, is blood, is feces, is anything that you can think of, urine, and it's attached to Jesus' back. Those men who've been murdered on it pray previously to him. Jesus, they were very particular about where someone would be crucified. So Jesus had to be marched out of there onto this place called Golgotha. Golgotha means the place of the skull or the place of death. Historians would say that as someone is marched there, that all the people would come out from everywhere and they would even throw garbage or sewage on that person in an attempt to add insult to injury. Most believe that Jesus would have passed through this little area of town known as the meat market where it was very narrow. The crowds had come, which would have been very difficult for him to navigate with, with, with almost no strength and through the, these narrow areas of, of places. Whatever the case, Jesus struggles under the weight of the cross. Having been up all night, maybe because of all the, the beatings and scourgings and, and floggings that he had experienced, let alone the emotional weight, the spiritual weight of the world that's, that's hanging on him, he, he, he struggles, and to no surprise, he collapses. And then a Roman guard grabs another man. His name is Simon. He's from Cyrene, which is North Korea. Uh, North Korea, North, North Africa. There we go. <laughs> anyway. A lot of jokes there, but we're going to keep moving. And ask him to carry it with Jesus. And so then there's, there's a man underneath of Jesus on the arm and trying to help him walk this horrible hill to be crucified. Behind him is a soldier that has a titleist, and, and the titleist is a sign that basically says the charge or the reason that person is being crucified. And, and engraved on this sign was, 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 was this, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was his reason. Not a charge, not really a reason for anybody to be crucified, but that was his reason. And that was written in Greek, the international language of the day, Latin, the everyday language of the Roman people, and Aramaic, the common language of the Jews. As they ascend the hill and climb to Golgotha, it typically took four or five men to walk someone through a crucifixion. They would take spikes that were anywhere from six to nine inches, not rounded on the end, but squared off, because squared off nails create more pain and it allows someone to stay on the cross in a more productive way. See, the more you resisted, the worse it got for you. If you were to fight these men and try to, try to evade them, the reality is they would use any force necessary, I mean any force necessary, to keep you still, to nail you on the cross. 
Crucifixion is so painful that a word is actually invented to describe it. It's from the Latin, excruciating, which simply means from the cross. Josephus would describe it as the most wretched of deaths. Most victims would last on an average of 72 hours to three or three days. Uh, the longest stay on a crucifixion uh, scene was, was actually seven days. Because of what Jesus has gone through, he will last a mere six hours. It is now a waiting game. The scriptures say at 9 a.m. in the morning, Jesus is crucified. From here on out, I want to kind of give you a bigger picture of what's going on in this crucifixion scene. I want you to see the, the sights. I want you to experience the sounds. I want you to understand the things that Jesus is saying because there's a lot of really powerful things that are being spoken in that crowd and then also to us, our crowd, today. First one is this in your notes. Three people are crucified on a hill. Two different responses to one king. Three people crucified on that hill. Two very different responses to one king. Three, two, one. Luke 22, 23. Two other men, both criminals, were also led with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified them there, along with these criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up Jesus' clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. The rulers sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. Soldiers also came out and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, hey, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which I already talked about, which read, the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung beside Jesus hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you? I mean, if you are, then save yourself and save us. The scene is rowdy. People are, are, are up in their heads. Emotions are at a, a fever pitch. People are yelling and mocking Jesus. This different conversation that's happening on a different level between these three men. Two men on either side of Jesus are, are talking to Jesus. The scriptures identify these two men as guilty criminals who happen to share the most monumental day in all of human history with Jesus. We don't know their names, but we do know what they say. One of them is a skeptic who joins in the crowd and begins to, to mock Jesus and, and say the same things. Hey, if you really are God's, God's son, the chosen one, save yourself and save us. And then there's another man who has had a moment of clarity, who's begun to see all of this, and, and the gravity of life and death that hang in the balance for him has caused everything in his life to be very, very clear, and he says these things. He rebukes the criminal. Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly. We are getting what we deserve. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. In a statement, that man says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the one that was to come. I recognize that you are different than us. I recognize that you're different than everybody else, that you are actually the one that all the prophets talked about, that we were predicting that one day you would come, and for some reason I've missed it, but now I see it with all that I am. And then he makes a desperate plea. He says this in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. Can you imagine being that man? It's the 11th hour of his life. He knows that, you know what, he's about to die. He reaches out to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. Look at Jesus' response in verse 43. Jesus said, truly, I, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, in the midst of his own personal anguish, looks over at this man, offers this man the gift of his life. Not just this life, but for all 
eternity. Truly, you can trust me today, not tomorrow, not one day, but today you will be with me in paradise. He's saying, my grace is enough. This man might have been the first guy that has ushered into the kingdom and who was so undeserving. James McDonald, who's a pastor, speaks about these two men that had two very different responses. He says, these criminals represent us, you and I. One of them recognized Jesus for who he was and received him, and Jesus promised that when he died, he would be in heaven with him. The other man rejected Jesus and closed his heart. Unlike the first criminal, when he died, he didn't go to heaven. He went to hell. In that sense, these two men on either side of Jesus are just like everyone, every single person, you and me. We either embrace Jesus as, our, as, as Christ, our Savior, and we spend eternity with Him, or reject Him and say, you know what, I don't believe it, I'll have nothing to do with it. And these people will spend eternity separated from Him. This moment, though, goes to show us that no matter what your past is, no matter where you've been, what you've done, what your sentence is, what people think about you, no matter the amount of guilt and shame, Jesus, his love for us is greater than all of that. You've got to understand that today. It's greater than all of that. It's a song we just sang, The Wondrous Cross. So it's where love and sorrow collided so that we could be forgiven and free. His grace is more powerful than our sin. And as long as we have breath in our lungs, regardless of where we are, we can cry out to God and be saved. I love what Robert W. Stackle says, the, the center cross silhouetted against the sky of Calvary's, of Calvary's hill has an eternal message. God reconciles the whole world to himself by the death of his son, and God can turn even the worst misfortune into an amazing blessing for those who trust his love through Christ. Now, I want to go back up into that passage because we, we blasted through something that I don't want us to miss, and this is in your notes. Jesus asked for forgiveness on those who were killing him. Okay? It's one little verse. It's Luke 23, 34. He says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. In the midst of him hanging on a cross, barely able to breathe, looking out at all the people who yelled crucify, all the religious leaders who schemed to kill him, all the Romans who just put him on the cross, and his, his, heart, his heart cry and his plea for them was this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine being on a cross? Can you imagine looking at the people who put you there and your heart's desire for them is forgiveness? I can't. I wish I could. I wish I could say I was spiritual enough to go, yeah, I'd do the same thing. I'd say something. It just wouldn't be that. His desperate plea for them is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the reality is that in in the midst of the cross, you still see the heart of his teaching and, and the passion of his life, which is his message, which is there's grace for everybody. There's forgiveness for anyone and everyone who would believe. And here's the cool thing and the convicting thing. As we think about the people in our lives who've done damage to us, who've hurt us, who've sinned against us, this is, the, this is our commission this is our command. This is the, the, the place that compels us to forgive and release and let it go for the people who've hurt us. Because I promise you, I'm sure you've been hurt and we could stand here talking to each other forever and ever and ever about everything and every person and every word that was said and I would agree with you, but God still calls us and commands us to forgive. To forgive. And so here's the question. 
Is there anybody in your life right now that the Lord is revealing to you that you need to forgive, express forgiveness, and let it go? And here's the reality. This may be difficult. It will almost be impossible if you don't understand God's forgiveness of you, uh, of you through the life of Jesus. But once you, you experience his forgiveness and grace in your life, we are simply called to do exactly what Jesus did, which is to, to extend and give over forgiveness, to release our grip, give it over to God, let God take care of it, and let it go. And not only does he command us to do that, but he'll give us the strength to do that as well. Next part, Jesus addresses his mom. I don't know about you. I don't know if you're estranged from your mom or you're close to your mom or you love your mom. Um, this had to be difficult. As Jesus is going through all the things that he's going through on the cross, he begins to look out at all the people. Some hate him. Some wanted him there. Some planned for him to be there. And then he sees some of his family. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Jesus just to lock eyes with his mom? A middle-aged woman who once was a teenager who was visited by an angel and that angel said, hey, today God has put his son in your womb and one day he will be the Messiah that will save and redeem the world. Jesus' mom, the one who breastfed Jesus, the one who prayed for Jesus, the one who rocked Jesus to sleep, the one who picked up Jesus when he would fall and scrape his knees, this is the same mom that, that watched his son grow to become a man who was full of God and, 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 and wisdom and stature, who was in favor with God and favor with men. But now it looks anything but that. This is the scene. John 19, 25-27. This is a woman that's courageously standing in front of Jesus at the cross, barely able to stand, her heart beating out of her chest, tears rolling down her face, overwhelmed in the moment. This is what happens in John 19. Near the cross, of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. While Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, who was a, a man named John, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And then he said this to the, the disciple that he loved, This is your mother. From that moment on, that disciple took her, took Mary, to be in his home and he would take care of her. Jesus looks at his mother and John and says, listen, John, I need you. I need you to take good care of my mom. Look at her. Look at what she's going through. This is too big for her. She doesn't deserve this. So John, you gotta take her in. You gotta provide for her. You gotta be there for her. You gotta protect her. You're gonna have to help her walk through this situation. John, take care of my mother. And then next in your notes, this doesn't get any easier. Jesus is separated from his heavenly Father. This cup that, that we talked about last week or the two weeks ago where he says, hey, take this cup from me. I don't want it. There's another way. Uh, let your will be, if not, then let your will be done. He now is drinking this cup of wrath, of pain, of suffering. God's justice put on Jesus. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God experiences all the sins of the world that are put on him in that moment. Jesus feels for the first time in all of his life eternally separated from his father. Matthew 27, from noon until three in the darkness in the afternoon came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've, you've felt that. 
Can you imagine Jesus who was a part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all of a sudden is broken for the first time in all of time, separated from his Heavenly Father. Then in your notes, Jesus says three powerful words. I'm sure they barely came out of his mouth. It is finished. It is finished. I'm certain that as his body is shutting down, as the blood begins to just roll down the cross and pulls out onto the ground, the pain is overwhelming. Involuntary panic begins to happen. Muscle cramps knotting his forearms and and upper arms and pads of his shoulders. His movement up and down the cross just to try to get a little pocket of air to continue to breathe as his lungs begin to fill up with carbon monoxide. All of this, Jesus is thirsty. And it says this in John 18. Later, knowing that everything had been finished so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked it on a sponge and put it on a stick, and they lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And when he received the drink, it says this, Jesus says, it is finished. It's done. The mission that the Father called him to was finished. He broke the tape. He finished the race. The work is done. I don't know if you realize that or not because here's what we do and there's a lot of religions out there and even denominations that push you to, to work and, and to, to strive and to climb a ladder and try to appeal to God and try to, try to get God to look at you and his love to shine down on you and when you're good he loves you when he doesn't you know, he, when you don't do good he doesn't and the reality is that's not here in this cross not in this scene I've said this before, religion is spelled D-O, which means you're always doing, always striving, always trying to, kind of, I've got to read the Bible, I've got to do all these things, because if I don't, then God won't love me. No, 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 that's not Christianity. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E because of this statement. It is finished. It's done. There's nothing that you need to do. It's been done for you. Grace is an invitation for all of us here today. Forgiveness, love, Adoption into his family, purpose, life, and hope are all offered here in this statement. It is finished. Jesus says it's finished. He bows his head. He breathes his last. He gives up the spirit. Jesus died. He's dead. No heartbeat. No air circulating through his his lungs, no blood flowing through his veins, and with no fanfare, no poetic prose, no drum row, no fireworks, the gospel simply right, and he died. John moves the story forward. John 19, 32 through 37. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man that had been crucified with Jesus, and then the legs of the other man. And here's the reality in this, just so you understand. All right, when someone's been on a cross for a while, Eventually, because they're trying, to, they're trying to do what they can to pull themselves up, all they're trying to do is get a little bit of air, and eventually, eventually reality takes them. And so if they're hanging on too long and they just want this to end, then, then these men will break the legs of, of, of people who are crucified so that they can't move up and down the cross anymore, and they'll die quicker. They break the two men's legs on either side of Jesus, and then it says this in verse 33, when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead... One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water from his body. The man who saw it gave testimony, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. This is John talking about himself, and he testifies so that you may also believe. 
These things happen so that the scriptures would be filled. There's two things here that they would be fulfilled. Not one of Jesus' bones would be broken. And another scripture that says, and they will look on the one they have pierced. Probably many of us have heard the words that his, lo- his, his blood spilled out. And I think that's horrible terminology. Because to spill out, it means to almost sound accidentally like Jesus accidentally you know, gave up his life. And the fact is his blood was poured out. Jesus willingly, sacrificially said, I'm going to give my life for the sins of the world. I love what he says here in John 10, 18. It says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. The command I receive from my Father. Jesus willingly laid down his life for you, for me, for every person that you lock eyes with so that we can know and experience forgiveness and freedom. In your notes, darkness, the temple curtain, and a Roman Roman centurion's response. You've already seen this, that darkness fills the afternoon sky. Not a usual thing. Matthew 27 says, At that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. Check this out. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city, appearing to many people. Hey, listen, if you like Walking Dead, this is nothing. All right? The end, hardly. Spiritually speaking, all hell breaks loose in this moment. Okay? Sky gets dark, earthquakes, rocks split, people are scared to death. It says that the bodies of people that had already died, the day, that Sunday morning that Jesus resurrects, they break forth out of the grave. Can you imagine? Because we, and for me in my 2020 time, I was actually talking to one of our other members in our church. We met for lunch, and, and he mentioned that very same thing. I've, I've always read this passage. I've never paid attention to it. I've never seen it, and God just opened my eyes to that. Can you imagine being a first century Jew? Can you imagine having people in your life that you cared for, that you loved, that, you, that mattered to you, that, that were meaningful to you, that, you, that, you, you know, that either died or the, or the Romans killed because of one thing or another, and, and you grieved them, you buried them, you said goodbye to them? And then that Sunday morning, next week, we'll talk about this. All these bodies come out, these holy people who've come to know Jesus, know God. They come out and they start walking around, seeing your grandfather and your dad and your, and your sister and all these people that you care about resurrected that day. Can you imagine demonstrating God's power to defeat the grave? Then Matthew talks about the curtain in the temple. And you could kind of go, turn to the temple, that sounds pretty boring. Here's the reality. The temple was the central focus in that city, and it was the central point of the Jewish religion and heritage in that day. The temple had three main parts, the outer courts, the, ho- the holy place where there was kind of an inner court, and then the most holy place that represented where, where, where God's presence resided. In that room was one piece of furniture. The Ark of the Covenant was in there. And no one got through there. No one could even touch the curtain other than the high priest. In fact, every year when he would do this, the reality is he would tie a rope around his leg and would go back there to sprinkle blood from from the mercy lamb, the, the lamb that they would kill, an innocent lamb. They would sprinkle that blood on the Ark of the Covenant so that sins could be paid for. And the reality is if this high priest had something in their life that was broken or wrong or sinful and it wasn't dealt with, then they would die. And that's why they had the rope so they could drag that person out because no one was going back there. 
So the curtain itself is four inches thick, all right? Length of your hand, 60 feet tall, all right? And in the moment when Jesus cries out his last, it is finished, it says that curtain that was four inches thick, 60 feet tall, torn in two from top to bottom. I want to talk about that because there is so, there's some gospel implications here, especially if you were a first century Jew to today. It, just, it rings true with us. It was torn in two. Here's what that means, that you know, all of a sudden now you don't need a high priest to, to go back through there to sprinkle some blood for you so that there's forgiveness, so that you can gain access, so that there's freedom now and, and you and God are good until another year when he brings another lamb and sprinkles more blood. The reality is now we don't need a high priest. There's no, there's no curtain that we have to go through. All of a sudden, God's presence is out, and we, we can be in that presence with God. We can have intimacy with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Romans 5, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, and underline this, we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. When we approach God, we don't have to cower. We have to be fearful because of what we're doing or because of the mistakes that we make. We can stand in this grace and we can approach the throne of God with confidence, is what Hebrews says. The temple curtain was torn in two. And that's crucial. But it was torn from top to bottom. And here's the significance in that. It wasn't torn from bottom to top. There's so many religions. In fact, every other religion other than Christianity means you've got to go from bottom to top. You, wanna, you want God to forgive you? You want to make your way into heaven? You want God to, His favor to shine on you? Then you better start climbing. Climb the ladder of religion. Start reading. Start doing these things. Start giving. Start, doing, you know, start going out of your way. Do everything that you can to climb this ladder so that you get God's attention so that maybe one day if God's in a good mood and it all goes well for you, that He'll let you in. But here's the reality. I've already said this. Christianity is not a bottom-to-top thing. It is a, bo- a top-to-bottom thing. You see, Jesus came down. He came down for us. I love what John 6, 51 says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. You see, this is God's initiation. We should beg him for it. But he extends this offer of freedom and forgiveness and a relationship with him and salvation as a gift. But it starts from the top and goes down. Jesus left heaven. He, he put on flesh and he came down. He came down into our mess, down into our darkness, down into our sin, down into our pit. And he died. He died. He lived a perfect life and he died on a cross in our place for our sins. And in that moment, God's wrath that should have been put on us, you and me, was placed on Jesus. And sin was paid for. And now the world has an opportunity to be reconnected back to God. The story of this temple curtain that seems like it's no big deal is simply the gospel. Torn in two from top to bottom. No more animal sacrificial system. No more day of atonement. Hebrews 7 says, such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, and pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And then they talk about Jesus. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. No. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, no, no. This is Jesus. And it says, he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. He didn't need a lamb. 
He is the Lamb. You don't need a high priest. He is our ultimate high priest. He is everything that we need. This Roman centurion who was a man who oversaw a lot of other a battalion of soldiers, he said this in Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion and those who were with him were regarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. Can you imagine? Of course they were. And then they said this. He said this. Surely he was the son of God. Think about that for a second. Rome was the oppressive power. It was the power in that day. They oversaw the world. They reigned and ruled, and they reigned with an iron fist. And here's a man who was a Roman, who lived for Rome, who killed people for Rome, who, who did whatever Caesar asked him to do, and at some point in this moment has a moment of clarity and says, surely this was the Son of God. And I don't know if it's because he'd seen Jesus teach. I don't know if it's because he saw how he lived or the people that he cared for, the way that he loved others, the way that he went out of his way to take care of those who were marginalized. I have no idea. I don't know if he saw the miracles. I don't know if he experienced one himself from Jesus. But here's what we do know. This man has seen and been a part of hundreds, maybe thousands of crucifixions. Probably numb to it. It's just his job. But this crucifixion was altogether different altogether different. He saw this man. He realized this man was, was, was a man. And he realized that he had been killed unjustly. And this man who's committed to Rome, who whenever Rome says jump, he says how high, makes a statement that changes everything in his life. He says, surely he was the son of God. He makes a statement or a confession. He makes an acknowledgement. And here's the question. You remember when you made that statement? I was 17 the first time. Maybe for you, you never made that statement. And maybe it's not in exactly those words. For me, it was something like, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God, and I accept Him today as my Lord and Savior. You ever made that statement? It speaks nothing of you. It speaks more about this, this God that we serve, this God that came, this God that was on a rescue mission to, to save you from yourself and from your sin and from your pain. A Roman centurion could say these words. Can you? And every day in our lives, we make a statement by our lives, by, by who Jesus is and how he matters to us. And, and here's the statement. In your life, can people see that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, the chosen one that was to come? Let me wrap it up this way. John 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he, he, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, which is very interesting. If you know your scriptures, John chapter 3, is, he's a Pharisee. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and if you remember the passage, For God so loved the world, that came out of that conversation with Nicodemus the man who early visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, but about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden was a tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was in the day, the Jewish day of preparation, since the, the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So you've got two men, one fearful, one who was a skeptic, and they both come to Pilate. 
And they say, can we have his body, his lifeless body? They take his lifeless body off the cross. They carry it. They pay for the money uh, to, to give the materials and, and to wrap his body because they want to honor and, and worship uh, Jesus and, and finish him well. That's Good Friday. It's horrific for Jesus. Horrific for the Father. Horrific for those who were broken in that scene, at that cross, in that day. But it is good for us. I want to close with Max Lucado's words from a book that he wrote about the crucifixion scene called Six Hours from Friday. This is a fabulous quote. I love this book. If you've never read this book, you should get this book. It's called Six Hours from Friday. It says, No matter what storm clouds bring, you can face your pain with courage and hope. For 2,000 years ago, six hours, one Friday, Christ firmly planted in bedrock three anchor points that we can cling to. Here's the first. For the heart scarred with futility, that Friday holds purpose. For the life blackened with failure, that Friday holds forgiveness. And for the soul looking into the tunnel of death, that Friday holds deliverance. Purpose, forgiveness, hope. It's our anchor points. It's how we're able to do this. It's how we're able to move forward. It's how we're able to deal with the the difficult circumstances that life throws our way. For you, do you have an anchor point? Do you know this purpose, this hope, this forgiveness that's found in only knowing Jesus that happened on that Good Friday for you, for me? Question. What do you do with that Jesus? What do you do with that sacrifice? What do you do with that impact? What is the Holy Spirit calling you to do? Because this event is the event in all of human history. And I don't want you to blink and miss it. I don't want you to live in denial and think that it didn't happen because it did. Because it has the power to transform your life now and for all eternity. Next week, it's going to be awesome celebrating how we wrap up the series. We've had like three, four weeks in a row that have just been really, really hard. And next week, it's going to be unbelievable. And I encourage you to be here. I encourage you to bring family and friends because here's the deal. Everyone needs to know about hope. Real hope. Real, lasting, eternal hope. I really encourage you to be here next week. Get here early, long before church starts. Find a good seat. Introduce your friends to people. It's going to be a powerful day. Just excited about what God's going to do. Let me close with this. Jesus died for you. Will you live for him? Let's pray. God, I'm not even sure what to say. Thank you is, is, is the weakest words, but I don't know what else it is, Lord. I pray that you would give us your heart today. For those of us who know you, God, may we be reminded and overwhelmed about your love for us again. The depths that you would go, the, the heights that you would climb, the death that you would die so that we could experience your love and grace and be reconnected back to the Father because of your willingness to go. For those of us in this room that have just never taken the step, maybe we've heard a lot of bad things about Christianity or you, Lord, um, I pray that you would begin to provide revelation that would bring people towards salvation, that would change people's lives forever. God, thank you for Good Friday. It sounds so weird to say Good Friday. 
as we understand what the scriptures say and what you went through and what you endured, but at the end of it, you would do it again. You would do it for only one person if they lived on the planet. You would do it for every person here. God, thank you. We worship you today. We celebrate uh, this passionate finish that you had on the cross so that we wouldn't have to endure a cross, so that we wouldn't have to experience your wrath, so that we could be forgiven, adopted, and found free and not guilty. God, that you would, you, would, you would rescue a man that's on a cross beside your son. Shows us and proves to us that you would save anybody who were willing to come. And so God, today I pray for those in this room that have never taken this step, have never gone public with their faith, have never allowed you to be Lord and Savior. God, that you would draw them, you would give them courage today to have a conversation with somebody. Father, thank you. Thank you for the events of this 168 week. Thank you for all the readings, for all the video stuff, for all the worship that we've experienced. God, may we come next week ready to worship because you are not going to stay dead. And because of that, we have hope. We love you. We celebrate you today. It's in your name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. All right.